continuing our sermon series through the miracles of Jesus. This morning we're in Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 20. Before we turn to the Lord to read his holy word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer to ask him to bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, bless now the reading and proclaiming of your word by the power of your spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May you be exalted and glorified. And may we be edified and built up as your holy people. This is the cry of our heart. For we pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord and for his sake. Amen. Dearly beloved, hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20. It is written. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless in the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. How many of you have heard a sermon on demon possession in exorcism from a Presbyterian pulpit? Well, this is part of the excitement of preaching the full counsel of God's word. 
In all seriousness, though, the first miracle recorded in Mark's gospel is in exorcism. We find this event in the first chapter, verses 21 through 28, immediately following Jesus' calling of the first disciples. It is a detail that we shouldn't overlook or underestimate the importance of. There is significance to the first miracle being an exorcism. And this significance is especially seen in this miracle in particular as it is the most detailed exorcism in all of Mark's gospel. There are truths that are central to the gospel that are being lifted up here. So I want to share four lessons this morning that we find in this passage. But first, let's lay some groundwork for what is happening here. This passage begins by telling us that Jesus and his disciples have traveled across the Sea of Galilee to the country of the Gerasenes. And this probably doesn't mean much to us, but this is Gentile territory, which is important to know because it gives us some critical contextual information for the passage. We will come back to this momentarily. Anyhow, Jesus and his disciples reach the shore, get out of the boat, and verse 2 tells us that Jesus is immediately met with a man with an unclean spirit, which is another way of saying that he is demon-possessed. We're going to learn the extent of his demon possession in just a few verses. But the scene that unfolds here is an extremely eerie one. We have a man living in caves that are being used as tombs. He's essentially been banished to this desolate place of death by the townspeople who have recognized his condition and tried to bind him with shackles and chains. But as verse 4 states, no one had the strength to subdue him. And we're told that this man suffering under this demon possession day and night was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And as Jesus begins to speak with this man, we discover the magnitude of his torment. It's not simply one demon who possesses this man, but many. When Jesus asks for his name, he replies that his name is Legion. If we know the history of this region, we know that it became a Roman-occupied territory under Pompey in 63 B.C., They know then what a legion is in this region. A legion is the largest unit in the Roman army, comprised of about 6,000 soldiers who all work in concert to wage war and exert power and dominion over an enemy. So the name that is given here isn't so much a name as it is a description. This man is filled with an army of demons who seek to oppress him and terrorize all those he comes in contact with. And if the circumstances that Jesus finds in him weren't enough, the reality that this poor man is faced with really sets in for us as Scripture gives witness to Jesus' conversation with him, in which we discover that sometimes Jesus seems to be talking to the man and sometimes he seems to be speaking with something else entirely. It's easy to miss, but look closely at the text. Verse 7, the man is speaking to Jesus with singular pronouns. Then, after Jesus asks for his name, no longer is it in the singular. We begin to see plural pronouns, we, them, they, us. And that isn't all. 
we who are reading the text in English miss this, but not only do we have differences in the singular and the plural, but we also find in the Greek that there's a switching between the masculine and the feminine forms in this conversation. The picture that scripture is painting for us becomes very clear then. Internally, spiritually, this man is being plagued under a tremendous weight of evil, darkness, confusion. He has lost all control of his life, and there's no one who can free him from this weight that is literally destroying him from the inside out. But don't miss this. What Scripture is undeniably describing isn't a man who has multiple personalities, isn't a man who is hallucinating, isn't a man who is psychologically disturbed. No, what we have is a man who is occupied and controlled by a foreign power. There's no other way to read what the scripture is telling us. And perhaps we should ask ourselves, how did Jesus and his disciples end up here in the first place? How do they end up in Gentile territory in a desolate graveyard in the midst of a dangerous demon-possessed man? This isn't a place that one would choose to go. And I hope it's clear to us that this was no accident. Jesus didn't make a wrong turn and end up in the wrong neighborhood. No, Jesus had come to this specific place very intentionally for the purpose of confronting these evil spirits in this man. And when we see these realities that this passage is presenting to us, then we discover the first lesson. And the first lesson of the passage is this. There is indeed very real forces of evil in this world that oppose God, which Jesus comes to confront and destroy. This is what Mark has been intent on showing us from the beginning of his gospel through these exorcisms. You see, Mark wants his readers and hearers to understand that central to the mission and ministry of Jesus is the vanquishing of the powers of evil. He came to establish God's kingdom, God's rule on earth, and it meant doing battle with the forces that oppose God in overcoming them. So he came to fight the powers of evil and to rescue those who had been possessed and oppressed by Satan and his minions. Luke's gospel records Jesus laying out his mission statement right from the beginning of his ministry. When he stands in the synagogue and reads from the prophet Isaiah saying the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Luke tells us that Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down and declared, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And Mark wants to reveal to us that this mission is being fulfilled by recording for us these exorcisms and thus giving us a glimpse of the front lines of the spiritual battle that is being waged by Christ with the forces of darkness for those he came to rescue. 
Mark wants to show us what is happening in the spiritual realm. He wants to pull back the curtain, if you will, and reveal the hand-to-hand combat of this cosmic war that is raging just under the surface. And this is an important lesson for us. For this is a war that is often unseen and therefore rarely garners much care or attention, at least among those of us in the developed Western world. In fact, many in the Western world have dismissed the reality of evil forces at work entirely. This is why we in the Western world look on these miracles of casting out demons in particular with skepticism. Of all the miracles, these miracles are the most likely to be explained away. We modern, enlightened folk often look at these events in Scripture and write them off as simple misunderstandings of the ancients who were ignorant to modern medicine and psychology. They just didn't understand diseases like epilepsy and schizophrenia, we tell ourselves. In our not-so-humble opinion, these are actually the reasonable explanations for these events that are just misinterpreted to be demons. But dearly beloved, do you see the problem in this sort of thinking? Not only does it deny the accuracy of Scripture, it also takes a central aspect of Jesus' mission as the gospel writers present it and devalues it. It is unassumingly asserting that the major issues that we face are physical and psychological and not spiritual. That we need to be saved from things like disease and wrong thinking and political oppression and injustice, but not slavery to the powers of evil. And at its root, I believe it reveals a denial of Satan's existence and power in this world altogether. Satan, though, loves for us to deny his existence. This allows him to work his mischief unopposed by us. As C.S. Lewis writes in the preface to the Screwtape Letters, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel excessive and unhealthy interest in them. If we truly understand this passage and what it is telling us, though, we will avoid both of these errors. You see, there is no getting around what is tormenting this man that Jesus encounters in chapter 5 of Mark's gospel. And though we may not understand or be able to explain demon possession, this passage does not allow us to deny it. But this passage also, properly understood, guards us from obsessing about demon possession, which we will see in our third lesson. In the meantime, however, we mustn't fail to recognize the presence of evil in this world. And though we might not experience it as it is being portrayed here in this passage, this passage vividly shows us that, there, that it is there nonetheless. In fact, I think it's Satan's goal to work in far more subtle ways among us because we do so often deny his presence. He isn't attempting to scare us as much as he is lulling us to sleep. Something as shockingly obvious as demon possession would shake us from our apathy in a way that would be counterproductive to Satan's goal of leading us away from God. Instead... 
He works by holding out for us idols, which enamor us with lesser but more immediate pleasures. Steal our worship of God. Distract us from seeking first God and his kingdom. Keep us hurried so that our families disintegrate. Produce division among us by creating meaningless squabbles. And the more he can work his evil, the more the image of God in us is distorted and destroyed. The more he can make us subhuman. And the more we come under his power and belong to him. And this brings us to the second lesson in this passage. Jesus comes to confront these forces of evil, not only because they oppose God, but also because they seek to do harm to God's creation, especially to those created in the image of God. God's enemies wish to destroy what God has created and called good. It should come as no surprise to us then that those created in God's image would be the most likely target of Satan's attacks. What this passage does exceedingly well is to demonstrate to us, as J.C. Ryle puts it, what an awfully cruel, powerful, and malicious being Satan is. You see, this man is not only having to deal with the internal agony caused by the demons, an internal agony that has caused him to resort to harming himself in an attempt to end the torment, but he has also had to endure the external agony of living alone, cast out of society, live in isolation. And this is what evil does, right? It leads us, or rather forces us, into desolate places. Places where we are isolated and Satan can have his way with us, whisper his lies with no one to expose it as falsehood. This is why Satan is all about fracturing families and frustrating fellowship. Because if he can get us by ourselves, he can succeed in cultivating cowardness and worldliness in us. For unbelievers, this means he can further harden their hearts against God. And for believers, if he can get us alone... He can push against our personal piety and sabotage our sanctification. He can encourage pride and produce doubt. He can attack our assurance. He seeks to unravel our faith and commitment to Christ and cut us off from him. And even before this poor man was cast out from his community, we are told that the people tried to subdue him. The word in the Greek for subdue is a word used to bring wild animals under control and this is what the demons had done to this man they had reduced him to a wild animal and this is always satan's aim to destroy us by dehumanizing us satan doesn't want people to see each other as those created in god's image as those created with inherent dignity and worth he wants us to see others as things things not worthy of love and affection care and concern things that are used for our own pleasure and disposed of things that can simply be thrown away this is how he wants us to see others and this is how he wants us to see ourselves this is the horrible reality of what evil is seeking and producing in this world. And we see the malice of the demons even after they are cast out. They ask Jesus not to cast them out of the area, but to cast them into a nearby herd of pigs. Unable to further harm the man, they are still intent on doing damage. 
So they go into the pigs under Jesus' consent, 2,000 of them. So we get an idea of the number of demons that were in this man. And they proceed to run them over a cliff. This is the nature of evil, to harm, kill, and destroy. Their goal is total destruction. And so we shouldn't just see the awfulness of evil in this life, but we need to see in this story that we are given a small glimpse of the eternal agony that is hell. The torment experienced by those who live eternally under Satan's control. It's a place described in scripture as being like Gehenna, the valley outside of Jerusalem that at one time served as a place where children were sacrificed by way of fire to the pagan god Moloch. Under, I, under Josiah, this valley was turned into a garbage dump as Josiah sought to defile it religiously in order to intentionally eliminate the godless practice of child sacrifice. But then it becomes a place crawling with maggots and worms where fire continually burns to destroy the garbage. And so it becomes associated with eternal punishment. It's a picture for us. We see this in the 66th chapter of the prophet Isaiah who writes about the new heavens and the new earth, but then adds that for those who have rebelled against the Lord, their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. The book of Revelation as well speaks of the reward of the new heaven and the new earth for those who belong to God in Christ. But then it describes the punishment for all those who have lived without faith and in disobedience, saying their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is meant to awaken us to the horror of the punishment that awaits those who rebel against God and do not put their faith in Jesus Christ and his all-sufficient sacrifices and atonement for their sins. They are eternally cast out of God's presence into outer darkness, given over to Satan for eternity, and he is a cruel tyrant. This is why Jesus encourages us to take sin and Sin seriously later in Mark's gospel when he says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He goes on to say, it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to Gehenna, translated hell in the ESV, to the unquenchable fire. Jesus is using hyperbole here to make his point that sin and evil must be rooted out from our lives or else there is a horrible fate. That awaits us. But this miracle in Mark's gospel demonstrates that as scary as the threat of hell is, and as powerful and frightening as the demons may seem, Scripture is very clear that Jesus is victorious over the powers of evil. This is the third lesson that I would like to lift up in this passage. So, third, Jesus is victorious over the forces of evil. Despite the overwhelming power these demons exercise over this man, they prove to be no match for Jesus. Jesus is immediately recognized for who he is. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that as soon as the man saw Jesus, he came running up to him, threw himself at Jesus' feet, and pleaded with him, calling Jesus by name. But not only this, Jesus is referred to here as the Son of the Most High God. 
This is a title which recognizes Jesus' unique position in relation to God Almighty. Designates him as the son of the one true God who is transcendent and exalted above all other gods and powers. Evil, in other words, immediately recognizes Jesus as a threat, but its only approach to him is one of subservience. Now we should let that sink in. We have the man Jesus standing before an army of demons. One man against an army. And what scripture tells us is that even a legion of demons proves no match for Jesus, shakes in fear at his presence. There's absolutely no contest here. He effortlessly casts out the demons, and he doesn't have to recite any magical incantation. He simply instructs them to leave, and they obey because the power to prevail over these forces resides within himself. As one scholar puts it, he speaks and the demons are expelled. His word is deed. Dearly beloved, take comfort. Jesus Christ has complete power and authority over the devil and his minions. It's an encouragement to those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ to come to him to be saved from destruction. He is the only hope. And for those of us who are already in Christ, it means that we should not fear the forces of evil nor be overly obsessed with them. As Martin Luther so confidently puts it in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which we have sung already this morning. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And so while the thought of demon possession might conjure in our minds horror films from the depraved minds in Hollywood meant to keep us up at night, Mark reveals to us a very different picture. Certainly the forces of evil are disturbing, but they are not all-powerful. While they are able to exercise power over us when we are defenseless without Christ, never do they have the upper hand on God Almighty. They operate only under his supreme authority, and by his word they are brought to an end. This passage reveals that Jesus Christ comes, that we might have freedom from the oppression of sin and evil. And this is our fourth and final lesson. So forth, Jesus comes to bring freedom from the oppression of sin and evil. This is a man who is plagued by unclean spirits living among the dead in unclean tombs, residing in an unclean Gentile territory. Everything about this man is unclean according to Jewish law. He is surrounded by and infiltrated with the filth of sin and evil and death. And Jesus at once cleanses him, heals him of these burdens, and sets him free. For this is why Jesus has come to this dark place. Dearly beloved, this is why Jesus has entered our darkness by way of his incarnation into this world. And what Mark provides for us here is a beautiful picture of the healing power of Jesus Christ in the gospel. We see it very clearly in verse 15. When the people of the nearby 
nearby town hear what has happened, they come to find this man sitting there clothed and in his right mind. This man who had been filled with evil spirits, raging with madness, clothes torn off, crying night and day, injuring himself, resistant to any attempt to calm or restrain him. And now he is sitting there completely sane, clothed, singing joyful praise to Jesus Christ. Isn't this what Jesus Christ does for us? Where once there was darkness and confusion, he creates clarity. Where once there was distress, he creates peace. Where once there was chaos, he creates order. Where once there was hostility, he creates reconciliation. Where once we stood naked in our sin, he clothes us in his righteousness. This passage gives us an image of salvation and discipleship. This man moves from being helplessly oppressed by the forces of evil to being freed to love and serve Christ. And this is exactly what the man wants to do, isn't it? Look at verses 18 and following. When Jesus is leaving, Mark tells us the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Dearly beloved, what we have here is Jesus commissioning the first missionary preacher of Mark's gospel. He is a Gentile sent to the Gentiles. It is astonishing, really. And those of us who have been freed from the dominion of darkness and have been brought into the marvelous light of God have the very same calling. We are to tell what the Lord has done for us. We are to tell how once we were slaves to sin and darkness and children of wrath, but now by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we have been saved from sin and death and transferred from the dominion of darkness into the marvelous light of God's kingdom. We are to tell how Jesus does not shrink back from the powers of evil, but that he confronts them and defeats them at Calvary's cross. We are to tell how Jesus, by his victorious resurrection, overcame death and now gives courage to face even the grave with confidence. This is why we have been saved. We have been saved from the dominion of darkness for the purpose of worshiping and glorifying God and serving as his witnesses in this world by demonstrating in our actions that we have been redeemed and by proclaiming with our mouths the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And any man who has been freed from the dominion of darkness and shown the marvelous light of Christ rejoices in this privilege. But the passage is clear that the message will not always be a welcomed one, doesn't it? The crowds are astonished by this miracle, but they want nothing more to do with Jesus. They are terrified when they see the man healed. And verse 17 tells us that they beg Jesus to leave their region because they aren't really comfortable with his power and his authority. They would rather live under the tyranny of evil. What a sad reality. But you see, Jesus has won the war against evil on the cross. But until the day when he comes again in glory and once and for all crushes Satan under his feet, Satan is allowed to continue to exercise power in this world. The battles continue to rage. Satan 
continues his rebellious reign as the prince of the power of the air, as the apostle Paul calls him in his letter to the Ephesians. And as such, he continues to enslave and imprison people, seducing them to live in the dominion of darkness. He continues to create darkness and confusion. This means that our task will not be easy because many remain under his control. Nonetheless, Jesus tells the man to go. And he commands the same of us, go and live as light in the darkness. Go and proclaim the only message that has the power to set the captives free. For God wills to save those who are like we once were. Sons of disobedience, children of wrath. He wills to reveal that he is rich in mercy by loving those who are dead in their trespasses and making them alive together with Jesus Christ, saving them by his glorious grace. So let us be aware of evil's presence in the world. Let us be on guard against it, seeking to protect ourselves from it and putting it to death in our flesh, not fearing it, but understanding that we have the power of God which vanquishes evil within us by the power of the Spirit. And let us be bold to proclaim the glorious gospel that others might know the freedom and love of God that we know and be brought into the kingdom of light. And to God be all the glory. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have power over sin and death. We thank you that you have power over the devil. Lord, help us not to fear the one who can kill us, but let us fear the one who can send us to eternal punishment. Lord, let us turn to you, find forgiveness of sin, freedom from the oppression of sin and evil, and new life in Jesus Christ, life in the light of your love. Lord, help us to go and tell what the Lord has done for us in Jesus. Give us conviction, give us confidence, give us boldness. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Believer, in whom do you believe? I believe in God's Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit.